Just a quick message before the show begins. We're a year in now and I've really enjoyed doing this and I hope you've been enjoying it too. If you have, then please like and share the content and get in touch with any thoughts and feedback and hopefully we can keep growing the show and getting more incredible guests. Thanks and back to the show. I'm Adam Gow, the DJ formerly and sometimes currently known as Waxon. Welcome to the Once a DJ podcast. DJing and DJ culture have been a huge part of my life for better or worse. They've given me a massive buzz at times and loads of stress at others and taught me a load of valuable lessons along the way. On this podcast I speak to DJs from around the world who've made the names when it was just about skills and selection, not social media followers. We'll discuss their journey through Ascendancy and what part it plays in their life now. Whether they're still on the scene, said goodbye to the decks forever, or still get a sneaky mix in when life gives them the chance. Whatever road they've travelled, they were always once a DJ. Welcome back to Once a DJ. I'm delighted to be joined today by an absolute legend of the jungle and DB scenes, <laughs> DJ, producer, label owner, and much more with an estimated 3 million records sold throughout a career which has spanned over 30 years. Sharissa Severio, aka DJ Rap, welcome to Once a DJ. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. It's it's great to get someone in from drum and bass, especially someone at your level who's been around it as long as you have been. And um, it fascinates me with a lot of the dance music genres, the... Um, their inception and, and the different styles that came into it, where people got inspiration from and how they've changed along the way, along the years. So it'll be exciting to get into a lot of that. Um, but if we can just start from the start with you, and um, the first thing I've kind of found in my research is that you lived in Malaysia in your very early years. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I lived in... So just to take it back, my stepfather was a hotel manager of basically, you know, high-end hotels like Raffles in Singapore, Vidala in, in, in um, Malta and places like that. And he would have a contract basically every six months to travel to a new hotel and take over managerial responsibilities and make sure that it was like, you know, up to scratch and, and doing well. And then they'd move him to the next one that needed uh, a little love. So the contracts were typically between six months and a year long. So as a child, I lived in multiple countries. I was born in Singapore. Um, my real father is Italian. My mother is half Irish, half Sri Lankan, um, born in the old Kuala Lumpur. Um, and so, you know, the, the, we're quite a mixed uh, family in that sense. Mm. Um, but then, um, yeah, so we traveled a lot and I spent a long time living in Singapore. Uh, I grew up in Indonesia. I went to boarding school in Penang. Um, I went to a convent school in Malta. I lived in Africa. I've lived in lots of different countries due to the job. We were moved around a lot. So then we ended up tending to stay in boarding schools and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, when they were moving consistently. Um, so, mm. yeah basically my nomadic <laughs> upbringing <laughs> were they were they all quite westernized the boarding schools then or did you get a lot of different cultural um inputs oh, that's a great question I, I i got exposed to a lot of cultural inputs uh which i think was a good thing um you know for me i, I think traveling a lot as a child was very disrupting and it was difficult. So I actually welcomed um, a sort of structure. So when I was in boarding schools, I sort of thrived much better than when I was being, 
you know, put in a different school for three months, then another one for three months and experiencing all that goes with that, all the joys of bullying and all of that stuff. So for me, when I was in a structured environment, it worked much better and I thrived in that environment, but definitely exposed to different cultures, which was amazing Um, and probably helpful because in my later life, I was able to have this chameleon-like personality where I could adapt to pretty much any situation culturally. I mean, if you're thinking of DJing, talk about recreating your childhood, living in hotels, traveling all over the place. You know, it's pretty much the same thing, which is why I feel right at home doing that. So, and why I love touring, because for me, it's just like, it feels familiar and it feels good, you know? Yeah. And in the schools, was there much in the way of tribalism? Uh, no, I don't know about tribalism. I'm not sure what you mean by that. Uh, there was a lot of discipline, definitely. So, I mean, would the would the kids kind of be in packs, as it were? Maybe packs isn't the right word. Um, kind of gangs of, uh, or was everyone kind of on an even playing field? I think, you know, when I was in boarding school, I was very young. So we're talking about like six years onwards. So uh, it wasn't like that. It was just, it was just children, very young children. Um, I remember the first night I was in boarding school. We, I never forget this. And I, I was seven years old, I think, um, six or seven around there. And uh, my teacher was called Miss Skoda. And I remember her because she had polio. So she had a, you know, uh, a severe limp. And I never forget her name. And the first night I stole all the other kids' toys and put them under my bed. <laughs> <laughs> and she, uh, she, you know, had to have a chat with me and explain that, that wasn't okay. And I was just like, the way my mum left me at that school was we were going up this mountain in Penang and we were walking up the mountain to get to the top of the school. And, um, you know, I remember it was one of these rare occasions where I had this amazing time with my mother. We were talking all the way and had this, you know, and it was just amazing. It was just her and I, and, you know, we got to the top of the mountain, we got to the school and um, they were having a pottery class and they were making all kinds of stuff. And I rushed in because, you know, I've just never seen a potter's wheel. It was amazing. Mm. And I immediately started making this pottery and I had made Vivian from uh, like, uh, it was it Vivian from some old cartoon. Anyway, I made this, this, car- this head shape thing and I turned around to show her and then she had gone. Like she just didn't even say, but that was, that was so, you know, years later and much therapy later, you know, I understood why I took all the toys, but yeah, that was, it was, it wasn't gang related. It was just like children. It wasn't until I came to school in England that I really understood bullying and understood, um, I guess, people being in their own gangs and, you know, going to my first mixed school, it was horrendous experience. It was in the New Forest and it was in Fordingbridge, actually. That's right. And it was just horrible. When you, when you came back to England then, was that, um, was that, did you come back with your parents and you were all living together as one? Yeah, we came back. I think I was about, I think maybe 12 when we came back to England and some of the hotel contracts had somewhat dried up. My mother's marriage to my stepfather was sort of crumbling. And then we moved to the new forest. We lived in Wiley as well. We lived in lots of different places with this massive place in, uh, in Fordingbridge. And, you know, my mother was, was wealthy and my stepfather had a good job. And, uh, but he also, you know, financially, I think they all fed all my, my mum was married like four times. They all fed off her finances until she was destitute pretty much but um it was quite you know it was, money was always an issue in our family there was always arguments about it there was always 
um, a sense of not feeling safe, of not knowing what's going to happen next. It was a completely chaotic childhood in many ways, but at the same time, there was a lot of privilege. And you know, our our, our parents' solution. Well, our you know, I don't class my stepdad as my parent, but you know, the solution was there wasn't much affection and attention. But if you threw money at the problem, you could put the problem away, meaning the children, yeah. and then you continue living the life you wanted to live with your husband. And, um, you know, so there was lots of money, but there wasn't really any affection, love or good memories in that sense. And um, we moved back to England and, you know, I ended up in Southampton and I went to Shirley School for Girls, I believe. And, um, you know, that's where we were. We sort of come down from this high, you can imagine running Raffles Hotel at the start and then ending up sort of like in a little cottage in Southampton. Like it was difficult for my family to understand, to, to, as it is with anybody who's fallen high from a high place of grace to a, a place where they feel that they shouldn't be. It's more, uh, you know, they were in not poverty, but definitely struggling. Yeah. Um. So then my stepdad had to take jobs in other countries, lower sort of scale jobs. And it just, they, you know, he was just away a lot then. So that was a very unhappy marriage. And, um, you know, that's sort of the time where I just felt it was a good time to get out. And at 14, I left home. Yeah, I've, I've been reading about that. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of almost gobsmacked by it, to be honest. Feeling like you want to leave home is one thing, but at sort of 14 years old, you, you went to London, right? Well, I mean, for me, the situation was was sort of forced because the, the family had decided to go into business with one of my sisters and buy hotels in America and make that work. So they were going to leave again. And I had, you know, just felt like I was starting to get settled. I just couldn't handle the thought of um, doing that again, yeah. like leaving and just going on the road. And, you know, look, I hated my stepfather. There's no secret about it. I've written a book about my life, Intelligent Woman, and people, you know, who've read that know what I've been through. But I just, just you know, I just didn't want to to be in that situation anymore. And then, of course, I discovered, you know, I had friends and I got into all kinds of trouble and I was just enjoying things. And, you know, I just, I felt like, I, I felt like I could do this. And um, I had a boyfriend called Ian. And, um, you know, I it was a situation where, <laughs> we had a holiday book to go away together. And, um, you know, I went on holiday and I just, I didn't come back, basically. Broke his heart. I felt awful about that. It was the first person I came and saw and apologized to. It was one thing in my life I've done that I'm not proud of is breaking a guy's heart and I've never done it since. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he we were so stupid young and, you know, he asked me to marry him and that just scared the crap out of me. So, yeah, I went. we went to Greece and... Um, yeah, when we got on the plane to go back, I got off the plane. I said, yeah, I'm not going. I can't do this. And I stayed till I was like 16 years old. And, um, you know, there's nothing my mum could do. And if you think about that, it's a terrible thing to do to your parents or to, to pe just disappear like that because you didn't have social media then. You didn't have all the things we have now. So I didn't even bother letting my mum know. And that's how bad the relationship was between yeah. my family and everyone. So, so I spent, you know, Two to two years in Greece, and I had the best time ever. And then when I came back, I moved to London. Yeah, because I mean, in that situation, that's horrible for your mum. But it's it, it there's there's two 
two um two people in every relationship right i mean i think obviously i sorted that out with my mom afterwards years later we had a good talk about it apologized you know i did all that stuff but there was a 14 year old girl in an immense amount of pain yeah and you know i was escaping all kinds of things i was escaping sexual abuse i was escaping the suicide of my stepfather um the death of him uh, which to me was a suicide um there was a lot of things that were going on and i wasn't being protected by my mother and she was doing the best she could but she was failing miserably in that situation and you know years later as an older woman i have spent a lot of time trying to understand her and see things from her point of view and to this day i still can't understand how you know i i can love a dog so much and and throw my life down for a dog if needed and yet a parent wouldn't do that and they would put their husband first is is still something i've never been able to reconcile or understand so i think she just lacked that protective motherly gene and you know look i'm not maternal at all i don't want children never had children uh, I don't dislike them. I just I'm not a fan of having them. Yeah. Uh, I think you really think about it before you have children. And for me, I was just too messed up to do that. I didn't want to bring that forward to my own children. I didn't want to bring my trauma onto them. I wanted to sort my life out. And by the time I did, it was sort of too late and I never regretted it. I was fine with my decision. But I think I think as well with that, it's back in in our kind of parents' generation it was more, you have this nuclear family, it was more of the standard thing, whereas now it's understood and people are more open-minded about whether people should be parents, whether people want to be parents. But I think, yeah, to, to your point, it, it's really hard to understand and rationalise that your parents can't do these things and can't be that sort of parent for you. There's definitely a lot of, uh, in my understanding of them, like this was a generational vibe. But at the end of the day, the protective mother to protect her kid is in animals. It's in everything. So to me, that has nothing to do with it. It's like you either protect your children or you don't. You know, it's mm. that simple. Um, but yeah, a lot of the generational stuff, you know, is buried under the carpet, right? People didn't talk about their own traumas, their own mental health issues or their own things that they went through. And she went through a lot. And I understand her history. She was adopted. She was never shown any love by her real mother, but her adopted parents spoiled her rotten and they were extremely uh, loving towards her and stuff like that. But anyway, you know, um, it all got sorted out in the wash, as they say. And yeah. we, we made a piece, I, I made my piece with my mother before she passed. Um, this year so I mean you know it gets to a point where you have to start to move forward and and not be resentful and not blame you can you can you can forgive because that's for yourself but that doesn't mean you forget you know and trauma is not something people can just get over or forget you don't ever stop being a, a, a sexual abuse survivor that never goes away you yeah. learn to live with just like people learn to live with diseases you know and you know the reason I talk about this is that there is a positive angle to this. I managed to turn a lot of my negativity, a lot of my problems into something extremely powerful and positive. And I really hate when people turn around and say, in a way, that's what made you who you are. I want to rip their heads off and tell them, pardon? Uh, no, it isn't what made me who I am. I chose to turn it into something else because if I allowed it to define me, I would have been a prostitute or a drug user in the sense of, you know, smoking crack every day 
I, you know, if I allowed it to my pain to overtake the actual inner strength I had, the good parts of my mother, then, you know, so what turned things around was me absolutely not wanting to let that define me, not wanting to be that person, not wanting to be like my mother and just saying, but there were also good parts, my humor that I got from her, you know, my kindness that I got from her. Um, so, you know, it's understanding what to take and how to transform yourself and to not let it define you. But there are definitely scars that that never heal, that that just stop you doing certain things in life, mm. um, you know. And, and But that's just the way it is, right? But I can say, you know, at this age, I'm probably the happiest and most normal and balanced I've ever been, but it's taken an awful lot of work and continues to do so. I mean, I'm constantly working on it. Yeah, and, you know, respect you for that because, you know, self-work isn't easy irrespective of what the experiences are that you've had to get into them and analyze them you know it can be a very painful thing to do but you kind of need to do that if you want to get free of them right I mean you know it's it's I think it's learning how to live with them um you know you can say okay I have this personality because of blah 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 and you know I remember when I was in therapy long long time ago I had an amazing therapist and um she said to me, you know how sometimes you say you drive around in your car and you're crying and you don't know why? She goes, well, here's what therapy will do for you. You'll still drive around in your car. You'll still cry, but you'll know why. And I never forgot that. And mm. I, I you know, made us both laugh. But at the same time, I can now correlate my behaviors with the things that I've done. I've been able to do that for a long time now. So, you know, it's great to know why you do things. So then you can turn around and go, okay. This reaction is coming from this emotional place. Now, isn't it better if I sleep on that email than just send it? Yeah. Why don't I think about my response? Because this has nothing to do with my childhood trauma, but I am I am reacting from that place. Because in a way, you're frozen in that state, you know. And and, and many therapists will tell you that that you are frozen at the age you were abused. And I always thought, well, that's not going to be me. I'm going to get past this. And so there's been a lot of work and, like I said, continuous work daily to to recognize those things and to say, look, for other people who've been through this, I'm not going to say, you know, with exercise, with sleep, with good diet and good therapy, you too can be free. You, you know, those things are vital. But let's 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 just be truthful. You're, it, it, it's very difficult to to get over those things and be free of them. I think you just learn to live with them in a more productive way. Yeah. So going on then, so you spent that time in Greece and then did you just go straight, literally straight into London when you, when you came back to England and did you know people there? Well, no, I can't, it wasn't straight to London. I mean, I was just, you know, giving you the short story, but basically I, came back to my mother's and she was, she picked me up at the airport and she went, because <laughs> you know, in, I, you probably don't know in Greece, but there's lots of yogurt and bread. And she goes, oh, you got fat. And <laughs> that's all she said to me. You know, any other mother would have yelled at me, got mad and whatever. But anyway, so I stayed back in Southampton for a little while. And then my brother who lived in Brighton basically was like, uh, you know, I'll take her because I didn't want to be there. So I went to live with my brother for a little while. And my brother was a DJ and still is. He's an amazing DJ, Funky Diablo, plays like funk and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, he was DJing with Pete Tong and all those guys. And, you know, that was their sort of time. And I never forget, you know, he took me to a club and that was when I first heard White Lines. 
And uh, that bass line, you know, that do 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 that was it. I was hooked. I was in love with bass from that moment. And, I, you know, I stayed with him for about six months. And then I, you know, basically, by the time I was 16, I was able to properly go live in London, get my own place, you know. And um, I was on the doll. I was looking for work. I was doing a YTS scheme. I was doing everything I could to work. I was working tables. I worked in a factory. Um, I just did everything I could to make ends meet. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I had a room in a house and uh, I had a little piano in, the, in that room and I had a little kitten called Trip. And uh, I would go to the supermarket and I would buy cabbage and mackerel and I had a little folder where I could split my doll payment up to make it last. You know, this is for my electricity, this is for my gas. And, and I was happy because I was on my own away from everybody and finally like doing my thing. And that is when I bumped into the rave scene. Just, just on one thing that you said there about your piano, you were trained to quite a high level, is that right? Yeah, I was. Um, one of the things when I was living as a child with my my mother and father in in Malta, well, mother and stepfather in Malta, um, you know, I was having piano lessons. Uh, never forget Edmund; he was an amazing teacher. And um, every night in the restaurant, you know, I would ba- once I got really good at it, um, I was you know performing in front of people eating dinner in the restaurant. So I got up to grade nine. I was really good. I had an amazing ear for it. I was taught with the Suzuki method, which is um, the ear before theory, meaning, you know, you worry about the theory sort of later. But if a child has a um, propensity to listen to music and be able to mimic it and understands that more than than the, the sight reading, then they focus on bringing that out of you, which is why I can dissect music and I can read music, but not to a high level anymore. Uh, just to, uh, not like I was when I was actually taking lessons. But yeah, I can play the piano, definitely, and get to quite a uh, quite a high level with it. But these days, I, I hardly play. I mean, I, I use it more in my production in the sense yeah. of chords and what I'm, you know, translate. I mean, it's not really much use for it because um, I'm not doing pop anymore so much and all the other things that I did. But yeah, it's helpful with writing, definitely, to understand how chord structure works, progressions, etc. Yeah, and I, th- I think if you understand, like, arrangement's a big thing, isn't it? Like, it's a massive thing in dance music as well. Well, I've, I've had the privilege in my career of sitting down with some of the most amazing, uh, you know, people in the world who are arranging tracks. Mark Isham, you know, when he was in Abbey Road, and I've been in the studio with Jerry Bruckheimer, and I've, I've seen how people conduct the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and I've, I've watched things and been invited to just watch how that studio process happens and it it's it's something else to watch the greats yeah. uh working because they are so humble in their approach you you would be really surprised um at the way people work and you know i was doing drum and bass when that was happening and signed to sony and um yeah, it, you know, one of my good friends is Henry Jackman. He's an amazing, amazing world composer. And, you know, he'd come to my house and we'd jam on the piano together and he loved, loved drum and bass. And he booked me, it was one of the, when he used to do a college rave in England years and years and years and years ago. Like it was one of the first bookies. And it's, you know, he lives in Los Angeles and he, I would often go to his house and, you know, and he was a wonderful friend and he would show me things that he, were work, he was working on for movies and just outstanding talent that you're just like, yeah, okay, I can never get to that level, but that's amazing. So, you know, but I learned a lot from watching these people Mm. and I learned how to 
a work with other people and also how to bring those those transfer some of those skills over so it was very valuable to just watch other people who are kind enough to invite me to their studio sessions yeah yeah hey guys i hope you're enjoying once a dj i wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on so i've teamed up with sure shot shop to create some once a dj 45 rpm adapter clamps These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from oncedj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out showshotshop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. Um, so then just going back to the timeline then, so you just said this was basically where you discovered Rave. I just want to say my timeline is all over the place because I just can't remember dates or how old I was. I'm giving you rough estimates. That's yeah. It's, it's, it's not about the times. I'm just keen to sort of hear about the experience for someone who's classically trained musician has been in certain kind of school systems and things. And then all of a sudden, like you discover rave, what was that like? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think that I started to find myself in the school in Fordingbridge because I went through, I endured six months of incredible bullying because I had come from a convent. I didn't even swear. I didn't even know what swear words meant. I was so naive. And of course I get to Fordingbridge and everyone is, you know, I I presume you can't swear on here, but I won't. Go for it. No, but you know, people will be like, you're such a, whatever it was and you know I'd be like okay (laughs) I didn't know what the words meant you know and then obviously that led to people laughing at me and you know because I was just trying to get on with everyone and you know I was just super nice I was such a nice sweet girl it was it makes me angry that that girl had to become hard as a corner you know to stick up for herself and uh I had to learn how to fight and I you know got beaten up regularly and that all stopped when I learned how to scrap and I cut my hair off and I had a tail and bleached jeans and I hung out with the boys and rode bikes with them and jumped off bridges and just became a tomboy, you know, mm. and it was great. And then one day, of course, like mistletoe came around and it was like, you know, suddenly I was apparently attractive. And um, that was an interesting situation. And uh, I just was never interested. I just thought the whole thing was silly and, um, you know, remained a tomboy really and uninterested in all of that. Um I just didn't get it. I just, I was still too nice in a way, you know, and it was just too easy to get her. And I think when you've come from this background that I have that you look for attention in all the wrong places. 
and uh, you really do look for love in all the wrong faces. It's absolutely true. You know, you you are, you, you know, there's a certain level of promiscuity because you just want to be loved. There's a yeah. level of, and you're a child. You don't understand things, you know, so people take advantage and there's a lot of bad things that happened in that situation. So for me, going from all this trauma, and the reason I'm telling you all this is because imagine now walking into a field of 50,000 people, and for the first time in your life, everyone is nice to you, everyone is hugging you, everyone treats you like family, and you are welcome and you feel like you have arrived home. Imagine what that felt like for a 16-year-old girl who has gone through multiple rape, multiple sexual abuse, multiple bullying, multiple, all this stuff, as well as privilege and all those good things that I had in my life, to suddenly walk into this environment where I was safe, where I felt happy, where I felt loved. It was the most incredible experience. Was that the acid house sort of era then? Was it like late 80s? Yeah. We're probably talking about 19, I don't know, 1987, 88, you know, yeah. that kind of vibe there. And, and, I, and you know, my favorite rave was energy raves. They were great. Um, and there was a guy called Anton. He used to be at the front always. And I just remember, you know, watching watching him with his dreads flying in the hair in the air and and you know, people were around me and just being so amazed. And I managed to get a job as a dancer at these raves. And, you know, I would dance to get into them for free. And it was awesome, you know, and then I started doing little PAs with um yeah, it was Fast Eddie and a guy called TC, I believe, um, and a label, and we would tour together there. It wasn't uh, yeah, it was it was it was really fun. So getting in dancing to raves and, you know, doing these little PAs where, you know, they just wanted a girl with like gloves on, you know, the, the white gloves everyone yeah. used to wear and, you know, big fish, little bit box dancing. <laughs> and they would have a few girls on stage dancing with them also DJ. And it was, it was really cool, actually. Super cool. Yeah. And did that get you closer to seeing the experience that the DJs were having and get you thinking, oh, I want a bit of that? I didn't really pay attention to that at that time. I was too busy enjoying the raving and, um, you know, I was taking an immense amount of drugs and it was just like, I, I wasn't, it, that penny didn't drop for a while afterwards. It was, it was just, it was just sort of years of just raving. I lived in a squat with like two other models, Heather and Jackie and, uh, my best mate Amanda as well, another girl. Uh, three of us and we four of us and then Sally so how many is that Amanda myself yeah so we all lived in this squat together and then Sally invited us to live with her in her house she got a house and I mean the squat days were just hilarious you know you'd be you'd wake up trip um get a coin <laughs> ice cream you know um just have a little boom box in the in, in 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 the lounge and you know and then you know you obviously sometimes the people who would evict you would come and then five minutes later you, your possessions are out on the street and then you find another squat and do it all over again. I mean, we were just a mess. Looking back now, of course I understand why all that happened. Of course I can see that I was in a lot of pain and I just wanted to numb myself to the hilt. Of course I can see now. And if I had had a child, oh my God, I'd have been so terrified that it, that it, I would never let my kid out. I'd have yeah. been, you know, knowing what trouble I got into and the things that I did and the things that I got into are just so bad, but so good. Like so much fun, all these raves 
And yeah, all the stupid things that you do are part of it, the the, the, the idiot things you talk about, the stupidity, the drug. I mean, how I'm not dead, I don't know. I mean, I took that many drugs. But, you know, the drugs were different then as well. Yeah. So they weren't the same. But I did end up in hospital for an episode. I had a psychotic episode, which is why acid is extremely frightening to me. And, you know, if I hear younger people talking about it, I just tell them about my experience, tell them to be careful because, you know, it can be too much. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I was just into that and I just did nothing but that. It wasn't until I went to... I can't remember what the rave was. It might have been a roast or something. I don't know. But anyway, there were these DJs called Dem2 and they were playing. And I walked in and I was with all my friends, you know, the gang. And um, sort of halfway through, whatever, they played the Suzanne Vega song. The da -da 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 -da. And, yeah. you know, that was the first time, £10 again, it's the first time I'd ever heard a breakbeat vibe. And it really was... It was something about the way they dropped that record, mixed it in, and had this hold over the crowd that got my attention in such a way that I just watched them. And I, I realized that the power they had to receive this giant hug from everybody and also give a giant hug, all this energy in me and love that I had to give that I had never been able to give and I'd never had recipiated, I realized that I could do that through DJing and wow. through music. And I always thought I was going to be famous since I was five. You know, I was a typical little girl with the hairbrush singing in front of the mirror and acting. So for me, it was like, oh, okay, so this is the this is the gateway. This is how I do it. And I had a funny feeling in my stomach. I got butterflies and I turned around to my friends and I said, I'm going to be a DJ. And everyone was like, yay, we don't have to pay to get into raves anymore. It's going to be great. <laughs> you know, and, um, and I just knew from that moment, this is what I was going to do. And that was it. It became my obsession. You know, I, I, in Sally's apartment, we had a Syntronic turntable and we had a tape deck and it was like getting records and mixing into that one deck, into the tape deck and mixing in and trying to learn and trying to learn. And then I met an amazing guy called Jeff B who, you know, started teaching me how to mix uh, DJing and getting into production and, we called ourselves um, Ambience and our first record, well, we called ourselves The Adored and the track was called Ambience, Don't Be Afraid to Love. And it reached number one on Mix Mag's chart. It was the first record I put out and it, it wow. did really, really well. And uh, it was it's a really interesting Balearic house record with me singing on it and playing keys and stuff. And it was just, I just never stopped. There was lots of smash records and tantrums because I couldn't get it right for a long time. And then I went on to, I think it was Rave FM and Cool Hand Flex really sort of started to teach me how to mix even, uh, you know, more in a more refined way. And then eventually I went on to Fantasy FM and that's where I really started to hone my skills and get good at it and the whole time learning to produce and do that simultaneously. So, you know, production has always gone hand in hand with me. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of great producers that aren't great DJs and there's a lot of, you know, there's but a lot of DJs are really good producers and vice versa. There's some great DJs that are awful producers, I guess. But, you know, for me, it wasn't one before the other. They both happened simultaneously at exactly the same time and had a parallel growth between them both. And I remember wonderful experiences like Hype teaching me how to scratch. <laughs> mm. 
putting two corn plasters on a record and showing me. And Hype has always been in my corner ever since day one. He's the one who got me on Fantasy FM. You know, he's the one who got me my agent. And when I came back from America, got me a new agent and just always looked out for me, played at my residencies and didn't ask for any money, you know, just just wanted to help out. He's just a lovely, lovely human That's being. That's amazing. What, was there anyone at that time then? So this is kind of a two-part question. Were there many other female DJs on the scene at that time? And if not, were there many people going, are you sure you want to do this? It's a pretty male-heavy thing. Okay, no, there's absolutely lots of other female DJs. It's such a misconception that, and, and so disrespectful to the other female DJs when people say I was the first, because that's not the case at mm. all. And, um, it, you know, just to clear that up, I was the first to play on the main stage and the first to get paid the same as the guys. That's where I was first. Yeah. But there were wonderful, wonderful female DJs. Obviously, you had Chemistry and Storm, you had Tamsin, you had Smoking Joe, loads and loads and loads of, of DJs who were out and, you know, doing their thing way before me. And in other scenes as well, like one of my very good friends was Mistress Barbara and Techno. And, you know, I, there's a lot of amazing female DJs out there. Um, right now, you know, I'm best friends with V-Dubs, who I adore and love. Uh, she's a complete nutter and awesome, awesome, <laughs> awesome fantastic DJ and you know doing great in her production and, and growth and it's her journey is really expanding and it's 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 awesome to watch um but I also feel very strongly about female DJs that complain it isn't the same for for them as it is for the guys because I I simply there are differences and we'll get into that yeah. But I have yet to meet a guy not play a record that is fantastic because it was made by a girl. I'm living proof that you can do what you're doing. And, you know, no one's ever, I mean, <laughs> people have definitely tried to stop me in my path. And, 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 but, you know, you, you have to be like water, right? As Bruce Lee says, you have to find your way around these objects, but water's pretty unstoppable. Yeah. So, you know, um, no one ever said to me, you sure you want to do this? And trust me, if anyone did, I would have laughed. Yeah, um, the re I think the reason I ask is because one of my other guests I had on, she's um, a turntablist. And when she was competing, she's Australian. And when, when she was competing in the DMCs and things like that, in the this is in the early 2000s, people would like sabotage her needles and things. Yeah, I mean, I can only speak from my experience in the rave scene, which I think is a lot nicer probably than other yeah. scenes back in the day. And I can only speak from my experience in the drum and bass world and the tech house world that I was in and the electronic pop world when I was in it. I have never had anything but doors opened for me, promoters booking me because of that. When I mean doors open, I mean not in the literal sense. I mean in the sense that I was always booked. So were the promoters sexist? How could they be if I was constantly being booked? Did they maybe sometimes book me as a gimmick to have the first female DJ to play the main stage, but then still I had to walk through that door and smash it down? Yeah. So maybe initially there was some gimmick attached, but surely, you know, after the 10th booking, <laughs> it's because you're good. Yeah. So I think, I think that I can say unequivocally, I don't feel that the promoters are sexist. I can say unequivocally, I don't feel that my DJ mates, my colleagues, all the DJs that I grew up with are sexist because there's different forms of sexism. Yeah. If we're talking strictly about the music, 
then I can say no. It's been an equal playing field. One of the reasons why I don't play all female events is because if if there was an all male event, I would be pissed. Yeah. Be like that is sexist. So I refuse to do all female events because I think that's sexist and unfair to the guy. I mean, my gender shouldn't come into how good I am. So if I'm playing, it's because I'm good and I'm equal amongst the guys. You know, Frost will tell you, he'd be like, I don't view you, you know, when we're talking about music and DJ. Because I don't care about whether you're a girl or a guy. Just You're just as good as – you're just a great DJ and that's yeah. it. That's why I book you for my events. He goes, you know, I couldn't give a toss if you're a girl. And that's pretty much the theory that all the guys sort of have. Now, have I encountered sexism in a completely different way? Absolutely. Have I encountered promoters that were completely dodgy and, and were broke into my hotel room and were there in their underpants when I got into the room? Absolutely. Have I encompassed agents who didn't give a crap about my safety? Absolutely. Because they could hang out with the boy DJs, go to strip clubs, blah, blah, blah. But a girl... Oh, well, she must be difficult because she needs more handling than a guy. Can't go to a strip club with her because, you know, she's not going to go to one. Well, I didn't. But, you know, my point is, is like, have I experienced sexism in the scene from guys? Absolutely. Have I been treated inappropriately by lots of people in this scene? Absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, it was a different era then. Am I going to come back 30 years later and do a Russell Brand? No, I'm not. You know? So... I don't understand people that come back 30 years later with, with it just doesn't make sense to me. It's like, it was a different era then. Yeah. Something else I was going to ask you about, and you've just, you've just mentioned about safety is cause I read Frost's book and he kind of talks about, um, how he kind of had the acid house era and everything was kind of peace and love then through sort of breakbeat hardcore and jungle. And he, he talks about how it kind of deviated in jungle and drum and bass and particularly like in the North that the events got really um, rough. There was a lot of guns around and things like that. Was that sort of era and that change something that you noticed and was it a, was it a stressful time? Yeah, of course. I mean, I went through all of that as well. Um I mean, it was stressful when you're DJing and people would come in as a gang from Manchester and fire a gun, you know, at the ceiling. And then they would say, right, you're done. It's time for our lad to jump on now. I mean, yeah, that's pretty scary. But um, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, you just went with the flow. Yeah. I, I never, I guess I never thought about my own safety in these situations. I was so driven fiercely by what I was doing that I really had tunnel vision in the sense of like, I'm going to make a success out of me and I'm going to be the best in the world at what I do. And that's all I cared about being great and being hugely successful. Uh, you know, my, at that age, I just wanted to fight back at all the wrongs that I'd, you know, perceived or not perceived or truthful that I, I wanted the world to know I did exist. I mattered. And I was fighting back, really, for the child that had been lost. And, and you know, yeah. I see that now. You know what I mean? I understand that now. But at the time, I didn't know any of this. And I just thought, right, there's one way and there's one way up. If I can just make 500 pounds a month, I'll be really, really in a good place. And then when you make 500 pounds a month, you're like, if I could just make 1,000 pounds a month. Mm. Right, if I could just make a record, if I can make an album. There was always a goal. It, I never let up on myself. I, I literally have not stopped working since I was 16 years old. I have been 110 miles an hour, Mac, 
lack hair on fire. Yeah. You know, like just it's it's always been like that with me. I'm an absolute workaholic. I read today that Idris Alba is talking about, you know, he's a workaholic and it's not healthy. Um yeah, it can be if you don't have any balance, but you know, at the end of the day, it's 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 all I needed to propel me to dizzying heights of, of fame in America, you know, and I got to where I, I always wanted to go. And it was amazing. So I, I feel like, yeah, I noticed all that, but I sort of didn't care. I was just like, that's just the way it is. And to me, after the horrors of my childhood, I'm sorry, it was like sort of a walk in the park. It didn't feel that bad. It, it wasn't like one day it was good and one day it was bad. As with anything that happens gradually, you don't notice it. Yeah. Until you look back. So it wasn't like, oh my God, happy hardcore is really great and now it's hell. It wasn't like that. It was super, super gradual. Uh and so it crept up on you, kind of like, you know, if you do drugs, you don't often notice you're addicted till it's a bit late. Yeah. You know what I mean? It can you know, cocaine can creep up on you. Things creep up on you slowly and then they they're there and they're they're in your life. So it's it's you know, it was it Yes, it was a bit scary, some gigs, you know, and yeah, you know, tend to avoid playing in Manchester at those times and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, I was so excited to play a gig. I didn't care. Mm -hmm. I was just so excited to do what I was doing. I didn't, it's just, you know, my goal was my goal and I was immovable from that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, I didn't have that many bad experiences with that to be honest with you i had too many good experiences playing amazing sets and just rocking the crowd that's that was my focus but yeah there were fights that broke out and things that broke out and it was a bit hairy but you know i obviously my memory is 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 your your memory is a protective thing it protects you from all the traumas you've had in a lot of ways and yeah. sometimes you don't remember things and, and 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 if it's not important the way my memory works is it just goes in the bin you yeah. know, because my brain is 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 stacked with the things that I want to remember, not the things I don't. So probably it maybe it was worse than it was, but my mindset at that time was I'm having the time of my life. So I was just happy. Yeah, yeah. And and you just mentioned about the album because your first album, I think nineteen ninety five, that was a self release, wasn't it? Yeah, I can't remember the date of it, but that was called Intelligence. Yeah. Did you have a lot of um, kind of outside support about if you're going to put a record out, this is how you need to market it? We were engaging PA companies and um, PR companies. No, none of that stuff existed then. <laughs> right, yeah. So so that must have been quite a baptism, baptism of fire and you must have learned a lot from it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that stuff existed, but maybe for the majors, you yeah. know. So what I did is I, I thought to myself, because I, I – I'm not sure if this is true, and someone could probably correct me, but I was told that it was the first uh, drum and bass album to be self-released on a label. But I'm not sure if that's true because uh, that's what I read somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, I'm I'm not sure on that. I I'm certainly not claiming that. But what I did is I watched the boys how they released their singles, what they did, and you've got to remember we had pirate radio station. You know, it was a whole different social media. It was like the TikTok of of its day, right? Pirate yeah. pirate. In the sense that it had mass appeal, it had mass viewership. So if you made a record, you just played it on pirate radio and you, boom, you sold like 80,000 copies. So, you know, it was a healthy time for the scene because people were making money. People were, you know, um, putting records out on vinyl and making money. Um, people like me were 
putting great records out on other labels and getting ripped off by them and not getting paid. Mm. Um, but the point was, that's how you did it. So, yeah, it was a baptism by fire, but at the same time, somehow we knew what to do. Yeah. Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying Once a DJ. I wanted to create a product for the listeners to be able to support the show and for the guests as a token of gratitude for being on. So I've teamed up with SureShot Shop to create some Winter DJ 45 RPM adapter clamps. These are my weapon of choice as a 45 adapter as they add stability and grip to aid you in any setup. These are available for £25 each plus flat fee postage from wunterdj.bigcartel.com and if you'd like to see the other models you can buy and also customise, check out SureShotShop.com. If you're a DJ who's been wanting to get into production but don't know where to start, or if you're looking to level up your beat making skills, look no further than howtomakemusic.co's online courses and personal coaching. Chris, the founder of How To Make Music, as well as knowing a load about music production, was once a DJ, and so his courses are ideal for the likes of us. From the Music Theory Essentials course to the incredibly thorough Ableton Turbo Start, there's a ton of good information to get you developing your music production skills. In addition to the video tutorials, there's a load of reference guides and they even offer personal coaching to get you where you want to be even quicker. And if you buy any course at howtomakemusic.co using the code ONCEADJ at checkout, you'll receive 10% off. So what are you waiting for? Visit howtomakemusic.co. So I just wanted to make a record that had you know, drum and bass on it. I, I co-collaborated with Voyager, Pete Parsons, who's an amazing producer. Um, who I met in Monroe Studios, who started out as my engineer. And then, uh, you know, he's an amazing, amazing, amazing guy. Uh, and this was before I was uh, uh, fully fred- fledged, you know, like obviously now I produce everything, do everything myself. But back in the day, how it worked is you'd go to an amazing studio and I'd go to Monroe's and, you, you know, it came with an engineer and you basically just sit there and say, I want this, this, here's, here's the yeah. keys I play, here's my samples. And they, you sort of learn to produce along the way like that. So, you know, but I'd spent a lot of time in studios learning about everything. So I was pretty good at what I did then, even young. Uh, you don't have to know every button to be a good producer. You know, you just have to know what works and what doesn't. But, um, yeah, you know, I wanted to make a record that had an eclectic vibe. So even then, uh, and I definitely was the first person to do this, even then, the album had drum and bass cuts, it had a song on there, it had breakbeat on there. You know, even then, every single album along the way in my life has been eclectic. It's never just been staying in my lane. I've always been about, I'm going to push my own envelope and and to to just explore music, period. And I'm fascinated with electronic music, but bringing in those influences of like rock or psychedelic music or, you know, anything that's grabbing me at that time and incorporating that into um, the style of music that I like to make. And because... I liked taking a lot of drugs. I I really enjoyed the psychedelic side of music as well. And, yeah. it, and also the visuals went with that. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed trippy, weird, like beautiful music. I guess I made it to buzz to. And if I enjoyed my own music, then surely other people would. And that was sort of the philosophy. <laughs> uh, you make music for yourself first, right? So, you know, it it it. It's very different being clear and sober and making music to the producer I was then. And it's interesting how many hits I had then. Um, it, it just, it's just a different era and just different. But for me, it's its a fun game to play when I go, gosh, it's so different now. Because as a producer now, I sit down 
and the dog wags the tail. Whereas before I felt the tail was kind of wagging the dog. Yeah. Like I was lucky, I made some good tunes, but I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, it wasn't like I sat down with an intention like I do now and go, I know what I want to do. And it comes out on the computer exactly as I saw it in my mind. You know, that, that, but that also is a level of mastery, you know, when you've put in that much time. You know, they say it takes 10,000 hours to become a master. Well, God, I've might have multiplied that by at least 10. So it's like, you know... <laughs> Well, I don't know how many, but the point is you become a master eventually at your craft and you're always learning, right? It never stops. But there does become a beautiful point where you're just in control. It's moving like butter, you in the door, you in Ableton are one. And it's just like, it's almost connected to your brain and you're making what you want to make. And that's a beautiful experience. But, you know, it took me a long time to get clear to be able to do that. Yeah. And your next album was your first major label release. And was that a really, really different experience. Like, what, did you have a lot of people over your shoulder and, and a lot of input? And, and was it smooth and all in agreement or was it frustrating? Yeah, I mean, that was a night and day experience. So intelligence is the reason I got the record deal with uh, Columbia because there was an A&I guy on there called Mick Clark, who was amazing. And he um, heard that album and said, so you, you're interested in songs and other music apart from drum and bass? And I went, I'm interested in it all. And he had the idea to put me with Bjork's producer, which was uh, Dom, Dom T and Aiden Love. And they produced Debut and all those albums. And they put me in the studio with them. And I had written a bunch of songs with uh, uh, my partner in, in Rhyme, who was amazing. Um, and, you know, we had written these songs together and um, decided to... Uh, you know, shop them and then played them to make and make like them. And then, yeah. So I got in with Dom T and we started to produce these songs. And my, my songwriting partner, oh, I should mention his name, obviously, Bill Bayless, who was amazing, um, you know, amazingly talented in every way. We'd written all these demos. And the, the thing was, we wanted to keep the vibe of the demos. And so when, you know, when it comes to a major deal like that, they want you to re-record all the vocals. They want you to, and you know, it was amazing because we managed to keep the demo vocals for a lot of stuff. And 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 Dom T and Aiden Love were just incredible producers. And yeah, we made Learning Curve, which you know, uh, I'm I'm very proud of. It was a critically acclaimed record by Ro Rolling Stone. It got three and a half stars. Uh, in fact, it was quoted as the record Madonna wanted to make. Yeah, oh, like <laughs> so that, that was pretty fun. Uh, but you know. Not because it's saying that, but it was just fun to get three and a half stars from Rolling Stone, and and you know, be and and, and it just catapulted me in the USA to, you know, hundred thousand stadium gigs and just bigger gigs and just big agents, and I was signed to CAA for all my film stuff. I, you know, Sam Kirby was my manager, Wendy Laster was also my manager. I had huge agents, so it just was a completely different experience. And of course, I got the backlash from everybody. Um, in England, uh, you know, I did get a lot of backlash. Is that because of the sound? Because it's really kind of it's it's a really kind of of its time like commercial sound, isn't it? Like like where it wasn't. I'm gonna I'm gonna respectfully correct you. It wasn't of its time at all. It was ahead of its time. Right. And that's why it didn't sound like anything else. But the reason I got backlash is because it's just the British thing to do, isn't it? Let's tear you up. Let's build you up when you do well. But the moment you're doing too well. Let's just do nothing but talk crap about you. Yeah. You're a sellout. You're this, you're that. You don't want to make drum and bass. You, I never stopped making drum and bass. Mm. I never stopped touring it. I was just in America. And I'm sorry, but any single person who was offered a multi-million pound deal 
and the chance to tour with people like Bowie, Christina Aguilera, Green Day, do shows with Seal, play drum and bass, have a drum and bass band, have a drum and bass tour bus. I, nobody would say no to that. Yeah. So, you know, they didn't like that the drum and bass record wasn't strictly drum and bass. They didn't like that I had included pop in it. Same as they didn't like when General Levy did a record and it became commercial. I mean, look, this is a, a common theme. And nowadays, look how it is nowadays. Everyone would die to have had that. Everyone would sell their mother. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody's doing exactly what I did 30 years ago. So it's it's kind of nice to be able to turn around and say, well, I don't want to tell you so, but I told you so. <laughs> you know, it's like there's nothing wrong with pushing music forward. Yeah, and with, with the General Levy, from what I was reading, you were the one person, particularly in the scene, that was that was supportive of the of the commercial success. Absolutely. It wasn't that I was supportive of the commercial success only. I've always been supportive of anything that does well. If yeah. you've got a, a daughter and she is reading in school and suddenly she does well and she gets offered a book deal, should you bring her down because suddenly she's going to have commercial success? So why should it be any different with music? Why is it if someone's doing well in music that they should be brought down? There were some misunderstandings, misquotes of what he said and things like that. But, you know, for me, it was wonderful because music with drum and bass was, I, I you know, I was playing Coachella playing drum and bass. Yeah. I was playing in, you know, Electric Daisy, 10,000 people in one tent. It was drum and bass. All of that happened because it was not kept solely to a few DJs who wanted to keep them as dub plates so that they would be revered as having tunes nobody had six months later. You know, it, it, it's like, it's bigger than you and it's bigger than me. It's not ours. It's 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 everybody's. But that's just my view. What do I know? You know, um, so I don't know. I just feel like when the General Levy thing happened and I was told not to play that record, I could have diffused the situation. I could have been nice about it and said, I understand, but I'm going to go my own way, you go yours. I was a little bit fiery back then probably still am. And I insisted <laughs> that I would uh, not only play the record, but I would start all my sets with it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that didn't go down well. But you know what? Everyone's made up, everyone's kissed and made up, done their own thing, and everyone realizes that was just stupid. So it's okay. You know, there's the other side of it too, to see it from their side of things. People wanted to protect something that felt very special, Yeah, that felt that it was just our our little secret, that this was a beautiful thing that we didn't want to ruin. And I can understand that. But cat's out of the bag already. You may as well roll with it. It can't put the cat back in there, you know. So it, 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 it just felt to me like we were on the era of licensing tracks, um, you know, things like that were happening where you started to hear a jungle in a shop. I remember the first time I went into a Nike shop and heard someone playing drum and bass. I just went mad. Oh yeah. my god, they put on the base in a commercial shop. You know, and you know, it was it was just like the bastard child is the bastard child no more. You know, it's redeemed. And um everybody thinks this is great now. So I don't know. I thought it was awesome. But uh yeah. Yeah, I suppose sometimes when when people are the kind of creators and gatekeepers and you've got this thing, it's maybe a little bit scary to be like, Well, if if, if everyone gets hold of this thing, they might People might make it something different and it, and it stops being ours. Isn't that the point of drum and bass? 
it is always was every scene of music was supposed to evolve and it did and that's why i fell in love with this scene because it kept evolving you had acid house and it morphed into you know break beats and morphed into hardcore hardcore morphed into jungle jungle morphed into drum and bass and blah 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 it wasn't that the point mm for me, that was the point. Now, I'm not saying I'm right about everything because I'm certainly not. But for me, that was my point of view. And that was it for me. For someone else, that might not be right. That might not be the point for them. And there's nothing stopping you making tracks from 1991 and staying in that in that genre and doing your thing. For me, I'm always, I'm always you could say I'm jumping ship, but in a way, I'm just interested in what's new technology wise i'm interested in what's new production wise i'm interesting interested in, i'm just interested yeah. it's an obsession and it doesn't stop here it continues to grow with me as i continue to grow as a producer and you know i have at my age i have still got my head in a tutorial daily watching a youtube video learning something about production it never ends and that's what i love about it the day you're done you're done right yeah, and I, and I think what you mentioned there about people staying stuck in certain periods, that's like hip-hop's my kind of first love, I guess. And it's something that you get hugely in that, that pe people will really eschew, I think that's the right word, um, eschew very modern-sounding hip-hop and trap and things like that because they just think everything should still be how it sounded in 1992. I mean, there's nothing wrong with you liking what happens in, let's say, 1992, if we're picking that example. So what? Stay there. Enjoy it. But don't slag off what's coming. You don't yeah. have to listen to it. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I play for Moondance. I play for Jungle Mania. And it's always crate classics, right? Um, some Sometimes a Jungle Mania, because the crowd's a bit more mixed, it's it's modern remixes of those crate classics. Moondance, it tends to be the crate classics. And, and I love that. I love that. That era is an amazing era. And there are raves dedicated just to that era. And I think that's great. If you're booked by the promoter, then go and play what that what those ravers are asking you to play, right? Go do it. And then there are other promoters that book me and I'll play absolutely what I want, modern stuff. And I, I get to do it all. And I love that. How amazing leapfrogging through time mm. through your thumb drive. It's amazing. So speaking of hard drives, um, one of the screenshots that I saw when I was going through some of your press was you doing a cover piece for one of the DJ magazines around Final Scratch. So were you an early adopter of that and was there, because you were playing to some huge, huge crowds, was there any fear about the adoption of um, of digital? I hated all that stuff. I wasn't into it at all. Um, it's just that I got a lot of sponsorship deals, so I yeah. had to try this stuff out and... I think I remember playing to a crowd using Vinyl Scratch or whatever it was that came out then, and it just didn't work. It started speeding up, slowing down. It was horrible, and I hated it. And I was like, that's it. Never going to DJ with a laptop as long as I live, and I haven't. And, you know, what works for you works for you. Um, I use thumb drives, CDJs. I'm perfectly happy with that. Do all my editing prior. Uh, you know, V-dubs and I have a, a, a fun argument. She's like, when are you going to get on board with the record box? And I go, I don't need to. I got my way doing it you've got yours don't you know what works for you does not work for me and everybody has their own individual i like to get my tracks and edit them all in ableton before i put them on my thumb drive so everything is done the way i want it to be and it's nice and easy and that's how i like to do it and i enjoy that process so that's my way of doing it call it old school call it long call it whatever you want 
But for me, that works. So, but with technology, with making music, I'm a completely different animal. So yeah. with DJing, I'm quite old fashioned. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm happy with my situation and I don't want to change it. And I'm good with that. Thanks a lot. Don't need to learn Serato. Don't need to learn Tractor. I've taught all of that stuff when I was a teacher, music teacher in LA. I know how to use all of it. It does not interest me to DJ with my head stuck in a laptop. It just doesn't. Bores the crap out of me. I think it makes you look boring. I think, you know, I don't want to be watching a DJ and them not reacting with me. I want to be present with them. That doesn't mean everyone who DJs with a laptop is boring. It means I'm boring because I'm very interactive with the crowd and I'm very much into watching them, interacting with them, making them part of the concert, singing along to songs, et cetera, and et cetera. I always watch Queen and thought the secret magic source with Queen um, was that they made the crowd feel like they were part of the, that experience. Right. And that for me is, is something I think is really important. Um, so, you know, that is my thing. And people know that I'm like that. If I'm not dancing at a gig, you know I'm not happy and something's wrong because <laughs> I'm I'm all about hyping the crowd up. But for me, as a producer, I welcome every single bit of new technology that comes. I try every single thing out. And then I, you know, whether it's, I just want to know everything. And it's a completely different thing. So you could say I'm ultra modern as a producer, ultra like stuck in my ways as a DJ. Yeah. But it works for me. So something you touched on there then is it's kind of the stage presence and it's not something I've really talked to anyone on this podcast about. Um, it's something as a DJ I've never had because I'm just, I just feel nervous. I'm a nervous performer. Um, but yeah, you see, particularly with dance music, you see there's a lot of DJs that are really, really animated and, and like say connecting with the crowd. Is that something you had to learn or was that just always there? I feel like you're asking to see if you can learn it. <laughs> um, I, I don't really play to anyone that's stood up these days, to be honest. <laughs> no, it, it's it's quite interesting, though, because it is... Is it something that's just within someone, do you think, or do you think it is a skill that a DJ can learn? I mean, I've always felt like I'm a natural performer. So for me, I felt it's always in me. But I think you can learn to be a great performer the more shows you do. It's like with anything... The more you do it, the more relaxed you feel. Having said that, I'm still deathly nervous before I go on every single time. Right. You know, um, it, that never goes away. Uh, do I think it's something that can be learned? I mean, either you're excited to be there or not. I think your nerves can be controlled, but nerves are your friend. They're there to tell you stuff, you know, like, and the day you don't feel anything is a day you shouldn't be performing, I guess. But but you can certainly get a grip on your nerves and and, and focus more on being but if you're not an animated person and you're shy and you're introvert, I mean, I'm actually quite, I know I don't sound it, but Sharissa can be very introvert and very shy. Yeah. DJ Rap is an extrovert. And, you know, it's like when Beyonce got, comes up and does her, um, well, she has, she has another character, doesn't she? Sasha someone or Sasha Fierce. There you go. So it's kind of like that. It's that there's, there's, to me, two people. There's Sharissa that nobody really knows except for friends, obviously, and, and close people. Um, and then there's DJ Rap, which is a completely different person. That's a performer. That's a person who's always on. That's a person who wants to make sure that the crowd's happy, that loves ravers and wants ravers to just have the best experience they can. That's that's all she thinks about, you know? Whereas, so when I'm on stage, I'm single-minded about that by giving them the best experience. And I think here's the thing, energy goes. So, if I'm on the stage and I am pouring my energy into you, I fully 100% believe that that translates to the crowd. Whereas I think if you're not feeling it, 
the crowd aren't feeling it. Yeah. So I just feel that that energy push, that's why when I watched Dem 2 and I saw what they did, it was almost like this magic, you know, imagine watching a movie with special effects and they put on a record and you see these vibrating waves hit the crowd. Because everybody knows, right, if you listen to podcasts and, and stress is contagious, well, so is excitement. Excitement is contagious as well. You know, the endorphins that you're pouring out of you are going out of you and they are infecting everyone. People see you having a good time. It gives them permission to have a good time themselves. You interact with them and go, come on, you know, I can't hear you. Let's make some noise together. And you're pulling the record down so they can sing the song, you know, ready or not, here I come, you can't mm. hide and the crowd is singing back. I mean, why wouldn't you want to have that experience is the question. So yeah. get over yourself, get over your nerves and get excited about what you're doing. Jump around, look stupid. Who cares? Practice in front of a mirror if you're really worried about it. I mean, you know, just do what, just do you, but let that joy that music is giving you, let it not just be in you contained, but push it out so everyone else can have it too. Because joy is supposed to be shared. So if I'm having the time of my life, you don't have, it's like having sex, right? It's no good if just one of you is enjoying it. Mm. You know? You, it's supposed to be a shared, amazing experience. And you get off on knowing that your partner's having just a good time as you. Pay attention, people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that that's the thing, though. So that's how I feel about music when I'm DJing. I feel like I feel this good. I'm excited to go. I've got an amazing set ready. I'm going to blow you all away. Let's go. Now, I happened to have a really bad set the other day. Just wasn't having a good time. Technical issues. It's my least favorite. It's a club to play. I'm not going to mention it. I don't want to play there anymore. It's horrible. And I never have a good time there anyway, as a, as a punter as well, as a raver. So, you know, it's not always great. Things don't always work. Sometimes you're just having a bad experience and the joy just isn't there because you know that these technical issues are, are happening and things are going wrong that no one can see from the crowd perspective, but under the hood, it's all happening. And um, But that happens very, very rarely that I don't have a good set. And what I mean by that is I don't mean I'm brilliant every time. What I mean is it's rare that I don't have a good experience from my perspective, you right. know, that I don't enjoy it, that I don't jump around, that I don't go mad, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like you say, I guess it's like, it's fostering that intimacy, isn't it, between the DJ and the crowd as well. I love the way you put that. Yeah, that's it. Fostering that intimacy. I like that. And it is a telepathic connection. You walk on as a DJ and it's your job to read the room and go, do you know what record would really wake everyone up here? Or do you know what record I should start with? Or I know what they want to hear. Oh my God, if I was raving, I'd want to hear this. If I was buzzing, I'd want to hear this. And sometimes when I'm DJing, I'm having that inner dialogue with myself. Like, what would I want to hear now if I was this, if I was this person? Yeah. You know? Sometimes I just focus on one person in the crowd who's going the most nuts and I, I play for them. You know, it, it just, it's it's all different things, but it's about really sharing that intimacy. You're right. But, but the power of what a record can do to somebody, change their mindset, change how they feel, elevate them to a higher place, a, a better vibration, just make them feel love. You know, if you only have to watch any video and try three pieces of music, you can watch a love scene and put dangerous music and suddenly it becomes an intense scene based on something else. Or you could put funny music to something that's a serious scene and suddenly it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, Which is why it's worth more than 199 or Spotify. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've touched on this with people recently about the transactional nature of music now and, and the subscription thing and how it's, how it's changed our relationship with it. 
and how unfair it is. In terms of the pay models and things like that. I mean, I, I won't go into it then if you've already covered this, but I mean, look, we all love Spotify. Spotify is great. Concept is amazing. But the pay structure is completely unacceptable and unfair. Why are you paying? Imagine I'm a prostitute, right? And I have a pimp. What is the difference? Because Spotify, they get their $9.99, right? You're paying them for subscription, but they're parasitically feeding off all the artists and music. And where are we getting? You know, you know what I mean? It's like, it's ridiculous. So to me, it's the same as having a pimp. I've done a whole tutorial breaking down how much we earn, what we do, how much, how much, how many streams you have to have to make a living off it. And, you know, I, I've done all of this and so I'm not going to go into this now. Yeah, fair enough. Um, obviously, because you've done this and it gets a bit like, poor me, poor me. But it's not about that. It's about the artist. It's, it's about people not understanding how much work. I, you know, Jen will leave you in my studio last night and we're working till hours of the morning on our, on our track that's mm. going to come out, right? And um, he's like, oh, if people could just see how much work goes into this. You know, it can take hours to make the track, but then weeks to finish it, sometimes yeah. months. You know, the amount of detail and work that goes into it. But don't forget the amount of knowledge that I had to learn, all the learning of tutorials, of work that, that my whole lifetime dedicated to getting to this point where I can make this track. Then I've got to put my social media hat on and do all the video editing, put all the reels together, do all that stuff. And you, there's so much involved in it that, you know, I don't understand why the subscription money goes that, why it's, why it, it you know, I just, I just don't understand how it's acceptable. And the only time people really realized that they were in trouble was when COVID hit because suddenly their DJing income dried up. And that's when everybody realized they were getting up the bottom with no lubricant, let's mm. just put it that way. That's when they took a look at their royalties and went, hold on a minute, because now everyone's looking at, well, let me make money from this. This is why I always say, make sure you're diverse in your income streams, right? Because you definitely don't want to be just relying on DJ gigs. So, you know, I've, I've never done that. I've always had different multiple streams of income, whether it's sync, licensing, merchandise, all the different things that I do to keep those balls rolling so that with, should one chair of the leg fall, there's still three. But the point is, the, the point is, it's like people didn't take notice as producers of how badly they were getting treated by the streaming platforms until they, until COVID hit. That's when everyone starts to take a deep look. So hopefully things will start to change and, you know, because it's all right if you're, Beyonce, then you make lots of money on millions of streams. But for artists like us who are just doing this day in, day out on our own, it's really vital if you want your artists to stay on the scene, to support them, to to buy their merch, to to, to go to their shows, to, yeah. to do things so that they have, because we're certainly not making the money off our tracks. And it's expensive. You know, I, you, you make a track, you shoot a video, you you use an influencer maybe that costs two grand and you're paying them this money just so that they can break your track. I mean, it's a different world now with TikTok. And you know you'll never recoup that money, but you want to have an amazing record and have it out, you know? And yeah, most records aren't brilliant number one records. Guess what? Most people aren't making Badadan. You know, they don't have EMI behind them. They don't have Ira behind them. They don't have access to these artists. They don't have this. So I'm sorry I'm getting passionate about this, but it's like, you know, very important for people who don't understand how it is under the hood for us artists. It, it only takes like a handful of records to get to number one on Beatport. It's not, it's not a huge amount of sales. So 
you know, it, it it's very sad for us because we can't get on there and platforms and say, did you know that this is actually how it is? Because the tide might turn against us and people would be, now I'm lucky I have a great relationship with people and I love people. They really support me and they support DJs very, very well. And their royalty splits are, are, are more than fair. But I'm talking about streaming platforms, yeah. you know, and, and the difficulty because you're in your car just listening to music, not understanding all the work it's taken that artist to get there, all the work it's taken to make that track and how little they're getting paid and all the money they're pouring into it. And, you know... I've dealt with artists who want to end their life because they feel like they can't make music anymore because they, they've got to get a job, they've got to do what they're doing. And even to make it as a hobby, it's too expensive. I'm lucky I'm a foundation DJs, DJ and producer, you know, but I feel really, I feel for the new producers and new DJs because, you know, they're lucky if their careers last three years. Yeah. Um, so there's a couple of things there that I'd like to ask you about. Um kind of a, around this which is like how because as you as you state you know you've you've not relied solely on record sales you've always kind of thought you know you've got the label and you've done different things um did someone give you the guidance on diversifying or is that something you just always kind of had a bit of hustle about you to do I'll tell you where I got the guidance from, from everybody ripping me off from every mistake I've made myself the way you learn is through your mistakes. Mm. It is. It is. I'm not saying it's great to make mistakes. It's going to make you powerful. But we're going to make mistakes. We're going to learn from them. Then, right? So, how I learned is from basically bad mistakes, errors, and judgments. Things that I wasn't paying attention to. Um, people ripping me off. Uh, contractual issues. I mean, everything I've ever learned myself is simply from mistakes that I've made or mistakes people have done to me or corruption that has happened on purpose, intentional harm in the sense of, you know, people not paying you for records they put. I've got 75 compilations that I've never been paid for. My biggest wow. record, Spiritual Aura. There's lots of things, you know, I mean, lots and lots and lots of things. So you learn, right? You go, okay, I'm not going to let that happen again. Let me learn a bit about the law with music. Let me learn a bit about streaming royalties. Let me learn about sync. Let me learn about publishing. Let me learn about royalties. Let me, because, you know, when you sign a record deal with Sony, nobody says to you, by the way, every time you're picked up in a car, that comes out of your royalties. So it's 20% your manager, 15% your agent, 5% your business manager, you're taxed at 40%, right? And every time you make a video, that comes out of your royalties. Every time you eat a salad, that comes out of your royalties. When you have a PA, that comes out of your royalties. So before you know it, you sold 3 million records, but not made any money. So it becomes a learning process, which is kind of why I called the record learning curve, you know, and, and you start to learn. And then you get to a point where you're like, now I'm in my own business. I have my own label. Let's do this right. Let's treat other artists right who come your way. And let's, let's, let's do this right. So it's all a learning curve. So I guess then there are people that do tell you and advise you and you do get some good advice. Of course, you know, along the way, a lot of people have helped me. Um, you know, it, it's really lovely to have people who know and have good intentions for you. Like General Levy's manager, Dan, has been nothing but a sweetheart helping me, making sure I, 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 I'm ticking all the boxes for this record because we're putting it out on my label. You know, things like that. There are lots of people that help you along the way and give you great advice. But ultimately, the biggest lessons have come from the biggest mistakes. Yeah. And, you know, I hold my hand up and say, I've made loads of them. Oh, my God. Hundreds of mistakes terrible mistakes that that have cost me dear with the label you know but i'm still here 
I'm still doing my thing. And, you know, when I came back from America, I had to start all over again. So. What was it that brought you back? <laughs> Man, uh, I mean, a couple of things were happening in America that were really sad. Um, when I moved to America, it was, I would say, and it's sort of, to me, heyday of, of electronic music. It was an incredible time to be there. I lived in Los Angeles. Every club was huge. It was just a wonderful time to be in the States. And I toured the States relentlessly and just loved it. It was incredible. I, I didn't ever think I was going to come back, I'll be honest with you. And then gentrification happened and they started shutting down all the clubs and, you know, Netflix arrived and, and suddenly rents went sky high and and just the whole gentrification thing started happening and it just became very hard to get electronic work, DJ work there um, because it was it was just difficult, you know, it was just difficult. Lots of things happened. I had a problem with an agent and everything sort of imploded at the same time for me. So I got into acting and, you know, I had a, I think I had a Ministry of Sound deal that went south. Um, I'd lost my agent. And then I was started. I had started to work for different agents, and it. I sort of became like a bad Elvis, sort of playing in smaller and smaller and smaller clubs, and then the sort of ending up in the toilet of all clubs. And you suddenly start playing in Vegas, where DJs go to die. And it was just like, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. So I sort mm. of retired myself. I was like, I'm done. I think I was about 2011. I'd spent a lot of money on a record, and ministry decided to drop the record after promising me uh, you know a record deal and a tour and all this stuff anyway whatever the point is is that it all went south and i thought right what have i not done i've not slept since 1985 i've not done anything else in my life but music i want to explore other things and so i got into acting in a really big way i found that i loved it loved it loved it loved it loved it and i was good at it and so i was really interested in theater and I was working with Howard Fine, who, who he's, he's, he trains many Oscar-winning actors, and going to his school in Los Angeles and just enjoying being a student, not trying to be famous, just enjoying a hobby and sleeping and dedicating myself to that hobby and teaching. I, I had a job at Dubspot teaching music and Ableton and all of that stuff, and it was just a really happy, good time. And I thought, okay, this is good. Your music career has ended, but you are teaching, you're giving back. Now, remember, I'm in a different state of mind. I'm not all about me and being famous. Now, I just want to have a wonderful life through music, right? Or doing something that is fulfilling. I wanted to have a purpose. So I'm teaching, everything's good. I'm doing acting, everything's good. Then the school became bankrupt. And I'm not going to go into why, because there was some, I really like Dan, the owner of the school, but things didn't go well at Dubspot for whatever reasons it did. And the school closed down, which was heartbreaking to me because not only was that my job, but I really loved it, loved it, loved it. And I thought I'd be there for life. I loved teaching. I love it. That's why I still do it to this day. So that happened. Then Brexit happened. And my lawyer said to me, if you go if you don't go back to England, you will have visa issues when it comes to touring if you ever want to tour there again and blah, blah, blah. And I was also, you know, it it was Fabio called me up and he had said to me, you know what, Rap, you should really think about coming back here because jungle is back, but re-being defined in a modern way. And you should you should get on this. It's really good. I mean, you were mm. part of the scene. You help pioneer it as well and should think about it and you know I've always been best friends with Fabio he's an amazing amazing human being 
and always in my corner again. And so I had started coming back and forth to England and just hanging out at V-Dub's house and staying at her place and just going to raves as a sort of secret, just coming to England, hang out for six weeks, go to hospital records rave, go to all these raves and just hang out. And I just found myself on a podium dancing with tears in my eyes, falling back in love with drum and bass in a way that I hadn't been for quite some time because I'd retired at 2011. So I realized that I really still, this music was really awesome for one. I loved the direction it had taken. It was back to melodies and full on, and it was just beautiful. It wasn't it wasn't this dark sort of technical wank anymore. It was just this gorgeous, like, it was just really good. And the new producers, oh my God, the Blade Runners and the Serums, and they were all new. I remember I didn't know who any of these guys were. So, you know, so I, I sort of thought, yeah, I'm going to come back. And so I thought, what with Brexit and everything, I'm going to come back. So I made a decision to leave my life behind in America, which was hard for me because it was 22 years. It was all my friends, you know, uh, had an amazing time there. I didn't really want to leave. But I always thought you can always go back. But at the same time, gentrification was happening. The homeless problem was just out of frigging control. And everything was just really, really not the same. And I started to get a feeling like it's time to move. Truth be known, I should have moved five years earlier. I just didn't want to mm. um, because I loved the beach. I loved the sun. I loved the weather. I'm, 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 you know, I had a very healthy lifestyle out there and, and you know, I love being able to wake up, go for a swim, hike, and and go to work. I mean, it's a beautiful life. Who wouldn't want that, right? So I felt like I'd built a nice life for myself. Plus, I was like getting a bit long in the tooth. And I was like, oh, do I really want to change everything at this point? And then I thought, yeah, you're DJ rap, just do it. <laughs> <laughs> just do it. You can always go back. And I really didn't think about it. Um, I just, oh, so impetuous. I, I just did it. And um I came here in 2019 and then of course I, I released my book Intelligent Woman and everything seemed to be going great and then my agent uh, Hype had got me an agent who was amazing and um, you know big up uh, Chris from UAA and uh, Harry and I just um, you know I just I had a year's worth of bookings ahead it was like all going well it looked like DJ rap was going to be back but something interesting happened you know COVID happened right and suddenly I'd lost all my work. I was living off savings. And um, I also realized that no one knew who the hell I was, <laughs> except for the old school generation. Mm. And that I really had to start again. And I was in my studio and I'd cataloged all my vinyl. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to start streaming my records and just playing sets and putting these sets up on YouTube. And and I'm just going to reintroduce myself that way. Because what 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 else am I going to do here? And then literally the first week that I did that, COVID hit. And I was just, talk about luck meets preparedness meets opportunity. I was just ready. So I started streaming and I, you know, started off streaming with not the greatest equipment, multiple phones, all this stuff. And it was very difficult and stressful and horrible. And obviously now I've got license. I have this beautiful black magic switcher box and I have this amazingly beautiful professional setup and I stream just on my website. But you know, that then it was a little bit more, it was still ghetto, right? Stream with the phone. It was all new. It was just wires yeah. everywhere. But I did these YouTube sets and my gosh, they just caught fire. And um I guess through the lockdown I was just ready and I just streamed relentlessly and I did every genre of music because, you know, I don't like to stick to the same thing. And it was, it, it really helped bring me back. 
But then I had another problem and a, well, not problem, a challenge. I had another challenge was that, okay, so now you're back and everybody knows who you are. Still the young generation don't. And you, your form of producing, you got to start from scratch. So I really had to start all over again. I had to research all these producers. I had to get to know who they were. I had to learn how to produce in this way. And it's taken, I would say, four years, definitely. And now I'm enjoying the rewards of that. This is that the fifth year I'm getting into, I think, nine, 19, 20, one, two, three, four. Yeah, I, it took a good three years, let's say. Yeah. To get, and, I, and I feel now production-wise, I'm really starting to come into my own. I, I feel like I'm starting now at this age to make the best records I've ever made in my life. And I'm just getting started. Um, so uh, that's what I feel. I feel like finally, finally, producer and artist are at one, and you know, and DJ, we're all at the same place. We've all arrived at the same place. Sharisa, DJ, rap, and the producer, we're all at the same place. I'm making records I want to play, which is really important because before I'd make a lot of records that I didn't couldn't play out. I liked them, but they weren't DJ records really. So now I'm making records that I can DJ and I really like, and I'm able to like drive the car and wag the dog properly. So it's it's a beautiful place to get to. Amazing. Um, so then that's brought us up to current day. So something we touched up upon when we spoke before is the amount of different hats you have to wear in 2023 as a DJ producer, um, entrepreneur. So what's a typical le- week like for DJ rap? Because you've got the music production, you've got practicing DJing, learning new techniques, the rest of running a label, social media. Like how do you manage to divide up the time? Because bearing in mind as well, the energy that has to go into these sorts of things, what does a typical week look like? Well, it got really difficult. So now I've employed a small, uh, I have a little family of uh, people to help take some of those tasks off me so that I can focus more on the studio, which is really where I want to be. I want to stay in the gold lane. So if I'm making gold in this part of my life and then all my energy is being sucked out creating social media, then you know I don't get to do any of the things that I really want to do. So before uh, I did that, which is only very recently, I've started to like have a little team of people to help me. And what I mean by team is an editor who can help me with certain social media posts. If I, I just give them the footage and say, just make this look good. Um, but typically, probably still 80% of it I'm doing myself, um, yeah. which is hard. So, you know, a typical day is wake up, obviously. I will spend 15 minutes doing a full body stretch because I need to be calm before I start the day. I don't want to jump up in the day and start doing emails. So I cook a nice breakfast because I'm a fitness fanatic and I make sure that I eat properly um, then I then I will go start tackling emails around nine o'clock, nine thirty, and then it'll be emails until they're done. And then I break, and then I go work with my physical trainer for an hour and a half. Um, and then I come back, and then um, oh sorry, I cook lunch, and then I work with my trainer, and then I come back, and then I work on social media stuff and all the things that need doing, whether it's label whether it could be one day, it could be just label stuff. Uh, it could be just do social media. And then I schedule all my social media. So I'll spend four days a month creating social media and then scheduling. So that takes about five days. And then everything is scheduled for the important things. And then the other posts are live. Um, and I, I could spend a day creating social media, TikToks, whatever it is, you know, that I'm doing. I could create, I spend a day creating artwork for the store. Uh, I could create a day working with the designer who designs t-shirts with me. Uh, I can spend a day doing, you know, uh, just just admin. Then I've got a subscription service, The Tribe, 
which, you know, is dedicated to building a community around drum and bass music and all music, actually, it's electronic. And, you know, I spend time talking to them, dealing with what they need, making sure they're getting everything they have because it's a, a subscription-based platform with three tiers. So making sure they get the goodies that are promised every single uh, week, making sure they get that, filming those goodies. So, for example, they get a studio mix, they get a video mix, um, uh, as well as Zoom hangs, as well as free music, as well as streams, as well as personalized merch. I get a lot on there. And if anyone's interested in that, feel free to go to djrap.com and click on the tribe and you can see what we offer. And, you know, that's a beautiful experience for me because every month I have this whole community of people and we are just a family and we arrange get togethers, go outs and do just amazing things. We're a tight bunch. And it's amazing, you know, because it really helped me through COVID to build this because I was lonely and I was like, what's the antidote to COVID? And to me, mm. it was building community and we had pub quizzes and all that stuff. My God, I mean, the, the tribe's now five years old in June. So I'm really excited that that has just grown from strength to strength. It's amazing. Um, then I'll be days where I work on Open the Door, which is a free service where I help producers uh, and I'm doing that with DAPS from Compound Audio. So we structure that. We do that once a month for free. And eventually that will be a subscription thing as well as the free service. So there's a lot of office work. There's a lot of sitting in a chair, which is why I work really hard at fitness because I'm yeah. quite sedentary a lot of the time. Um, and I don't like that, but I have to. I spend easily 10, 12 hours a day at my desk. And before what was happening is then I would have dinner, break, um, and maybe, you know, I will go to the studio if I'm not drained. But what I was finding is that I was really drained and just honestly just tired. So I decided to hire an editor. So now I can just do a little bit of work in the day, work six hours maybe at the desk, you know, six, seven hours. And then I'm excited to go to the studio because I'm more creative at night. Yeah. And, um, you know, I can work in the studio until like 2 a.m. And then I'm back up again at eight the next day. But um, lately I've been trying to go to bed earlier and I get in bed at like, you know, 10 and then I sleep at like one. <laughs> so it's, I'm trying to, I'm trying to not be up so late and get up so early because, you know, I'm trying to get more than five hours sleep a night. And I, I typically, I get about six, I would say now, which is good. So that's pretty much my life. It's not very exciting. It's actually just a lot of work and, and it's a business, right? I'm a business, you know, I'm a brand and a business. I'm, I, I have to work really hard to make money solely from music. This is all I do. So weekends, you know, typical Friday, I'll practice, get my set together. If it's time for a new set, then I'll buy a bunch of records or go through all my promos, which is so boring. And then I'll edit them all. And maybe I'll get like 100 promos and I'll edit them down to like 20. And then I'll play them on the decks and then I'll only like two. <laughs> so it becomes very... You know, it, there's a lot of parts of this that are just so boring. You guys just see the one-tenth of the iceberg, the Jesus yeah. Christ post and me going nuts. But what it took, the nine-tenths of that iceberg to get there, um, you know, buying all the records, going through lots of promos on in-flight, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, that'll be Thursday editing, then Friday practicing, then you've got a gig Friday or Saturday, whatever it is, or both. So, you know, and it can play havoc with your sleep cycle, you know, because, you know, m Monday to Friday, I'm sort of waking up at like 8 a.m. and then going to bed sort of like 1, 2. But then in the week, it's like I don't come home sometimes till 5, 6 in the morning. Depends what I'm playing, right? So it's, it's you know, you sort of have this one lifestyle at the weekend and another lifestyle 
But yeah, I don't, I'm trying to get a better balance of going out more with people from the tribe and ha- we're booking dinners in certain parts of London and hanging out and yeah. inviting people from the tribe to meet us. And I'm just trying to have more of a social life because I really don't, you know, um, that's not good, but I'm perfectly fine with the, the way I'm living my life. Mm. As long as I've got exercise in my life, which is something I love and adore and I love my trainer. He's amazing. Big up Camille. Um, but like, you know, I, I want to be the fittest person I can be and look the best I can be at my age. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to, not because I think you'll live, because you still die. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's not that. It's just that I want the quality of my life. I don't want to be reach an age of 70 or 80 and not be able to move around and yeah. do the thing. I want to I be as, you know, I want to be as mobile and healthy as I can be until I die. That's my goal. So I don't care if I don't live a long life. I just want to live a life where I'm not, besieged by illness or brain deficiencies or things like that you know and 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 I worry about those things with all the drugs that I've taken and stuff like that so I want to try to do as much as I can which is why I have I have a trainer who's also a nutritionist and you know the meals I have to send him a picture of every meal I take when I take it you know so that we're making sure everything is working properly so that my body is running like a Ferrari you know it's getting the right amount of greens the right amount of proteins the right amount of carbs and, and, and just eating a healthy lifestyle that's sustainable. But as well with this, though, I mean, being at, you're 54, right? Yeah, I'll be 55 in December. I mean, I, I'm 41 and, and I'm pretty tired quite often, let's let's say. Um, I think the, the older that we get, it's, you've got to do so much more in terms of your nutrition and things like that, particularly with the sort of lifestyle you've got where you're traveling, you've got these differences in your nights and your sleep patterns and things. Like if you didn't probably have that nutrition and that exercise, you'd probably struggle a lot more with the rest of it. Before I met Camille, I was, I have a underactive thyroid and I was very tired all the time and I had so little energy. Um, And, you know, I, I just said, I've got to a point where I just feel really tired. And and I would go through periods like this. And I'd go through periods where I was just boxing and exercising and going mad. And but I still start to I, I this year is when I start to feel really tired. And I was just like, you know, why am I so tired? I, I don't look my age. I know I know people tell me I look like late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. And, you know, I'm so I hired a trainer who really knew what I was doing. Since I've been working with him. And, you know, he's just one of the trainers at, at, at Buzz Gym. He's amazing. He just knows his stuff. I have so much energy. It's ridiculous. I'm eating more than I've ever eaten, but they're small meals. They're regular through the day, so like three times a day. But it's making sure that you are putting the right food in your body. So, you know, it, it, listen, I'm not vegan or vegetarian, so it's harder for vegans. My best friend, Majuli, she's vegan. So it's, you know, hats off to her for how she does her lifestyle because you've got to take a lot of supplements and know what you're doing. But for me, you know, I, I have to always start my day with like two eggs, you know, and then some leafy greens and I'll have a bit of avocado and I'll chop up some cucumber, tomatoes, onions and I make sure that I start with a really good breakfast because I used to skip breakfast. So I eat breakfast now within half an hour of waking up. Before I train, I make sure I have my proteins, my carbs, again, vegetables, all that stuff, you know what I mean? And carbs, not a lot, just like I might have some Mexican rice or I might have some sweet potato or something like that and I batch cook my food. Yeah. And, you know, if I do all my cooking on a Sunday, it'll last me through the week. I'll cook like three three or four meals on a Sunday and then I've got three choices all through the week and they're all put in containers so I don't have to worry and it's all done easy and then I have an amazing 
a protein shake as well if I don't want to do eggs. So it's not hard. It's hard if you have a family. Look, it's really easy to do this stuff if you're single, alone, and you don't have to worry about anyone else. It, it, there's no excuse. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's not expensive. You know, you go to Aldi, go to get all your vegetables, get everything you need, get whatever you want. I mean, I go to Marx's Barks for meat, whatever. But, you know, I'll get one steak and I'll chop it up into four. It's mm. also about portions, you know. So, you know, it'll last me. Like, it'll last me. And whereas if I was to get takeaways or food like that or order in, it would cost me a fortune. I'm not spending money on that. Yeah. Occasionally, I'll get a Wagamama, you know, and I'll order in. But it's, like, so expensive. And I just, I just feel like it's so lazy. It's almost like... As a society, what are we trying to aim for? Where we just sit on a couch and everything's brought to you? Get out there. Get out there and walk. Get out there and exercise, you know. And this is one of the things I struggle with in England was the weather. It's so hard to get your vitamin D, you know, and to and to go out and take walks. Like, it's so wonderful when you have the sun here. It's the perfect place. But, like, when there's no sun, it's really hard to get over that depression and the feeling that you get of being boxed in in the winter. It's just dark all the time and... So for me, because I, I, you know, suffer from depression, it's very, very important to stay elevated. And how I do that is through a good diet, exercise, and, you know, all the other crap that I have to do as well to stay, like, afloat. Because it's easy to sink. But I don't want to be the kind of person that sinks at any little problem that comes along. I want to be the kind of person that's like, I handle that like a friggin' Viking. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I fail, obviously, but I'm telling you these things, especially as we get older, the things that women have to go through, menopause and all that stuff, all that fun stuff, you know, the diet and exercise and also accepting that you're not going to look the same forever. Embracing that as well is really hard. It's really hard um, because so much value is put on how you look. Yeah. So much value for your social media is so many comments that you look amazing, you look amazing, you look amazing. God, it'd be so nice if people would just say, your music is amazing. But this is the world we live in, you know? Yeah, and, and it's a funny one, like doing a lot of the research on you, that that is like in certain like sort of forums and things like that, it is kind of the thing that comes up a lot is your looks. You know, it, that must bring a lot of pressure. No, it doesn't because one, I don't read any of that stuff. And two, I just think that you just got to not read your own press and not read about forums and not read what people are saying to you. Like occasionally if I do a stream, I'll read a couple of comments and respond. But typically I stay away from it because experience has shown me uh, that it's bad for your mental health. It's just that mm. simple. And if people want to put my value on how I look instead of what I've achieved, that's their own shallowness, not mine. That's a reflection of them, not me. So why should I read their comments and give them any weight? Yeah. So... Whilst I appreciate that people are saying nice things, I also don't need to be validated by by comments or things like that. That's not what I'm in it for, you know? So I'm in it for the people that really appreciate that I'm giving them a good time. Yeah. And they feel that they've had that good time. They paid their money. They, they work hard. They bought a ticket that costs a lot. They paid their money. Did I give you value for money? That's all I care about, you know? And hey, look, if you like the way I look in the process, that's okay too. I know I'm lucky, but at the same time, that's not what I want to be known for. Remember, my looks are the reason I was targeted and sexually abused and all the things that have happened to me, you know? So like, in a way, you know, it is much nicer to be known for your achievements, your technical prowess, your obsession, your dedication to the craft, 
the fact that you don't give up, the fact that you give back and and spend time doing things for new producers that 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 take time and money to do. Yeah. So I much rather put my value there. And seeing as no one else is telling me that stuff, I remind myself of that stuff every day so that I feel good, so that I don't feel put into a box. And I try to remind myself that I do these things. I am a good person. I'm not perfect. I'm definitely flawed. But like all we can do in life is our best and have a purpose and, and leave a good mark on this world. That's all we can do. So, you know, that's what I'm trying to do. Absolutely. And and the one last thing I wanted to ask you about is when we talked before, we talked about sacrifice and um, kind of what do you think that you've sacrificed over the years with with working just so hard on your career? Well, everything. I mean, going out, having friends, having boyfriends, having a marriage, having kids. You choose this life. Well, it chooses you, I should say. But now I'm single. I'm 54. I like the way I live, but I do wonder, like, what the hell is it going to be like if I live a long time? And I don't think I'll probably live a long time, so I sort of don't worry about it. But sometimes I see people with kids and, and stuff, and I think, I wonder what it would have been like, you mm. know? But then I hear them screaming, and I go, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, I do wonder. Of course, I'm human. and I'm just being real with you, you know? It would be lovely to have built an amazing relationship it would have been lovely to have but i i chose this life it chose me it saved my life it's what brings me happiness and i will do it till the day i die and if it means that i die alone and i die not experiencing all the other things think about all the things i have experienced because of it the world i've seen the traveling i get to do the the fact that i get to do what i love every day which means i'm richer than anyone I know in time because I spend my time how I choose to, t to spend it because time's the one thing we all don't get back. So for me, it's like what makes me rich is that I own my time. So if I want to not work today and I want to just get on a plane and go somewhere, I can do that. You know, I'm not rich, but I can do that. Um, it, it, that's an incredible blessing that because music doesn't owe you a living, you know, and it, I just know that I've worked really hard and I've put all of this work into it. And yeah, I should be able to enjoy it. But have I sacrificed everything for it? Yeah, of course I have. Of course I have. But if I had it all to do again, <sighs> I don't think I would do it differently. Maybe I'd hang on. I don't, I don't think I'd even go out with any. I don't think I'd even hang on to any of the relationships I had. I don't know. I just can't imagine it being any other way. Yeah. I, I feel at this point in my life, like I really enjoy silence and being quiet. And I, I spend a lot of time just being quiet, you know, mm. and listening. And I just feel like that the moment someone comes into your world, they just tip that upside down. You know, it's very difficult to find a partner who understands that you need a lot of alone time, that you're extremely independent, that you don't need them. You just want to spend time with them. There's a difference. Massively. You know, and, and it's like I've spent so much time working on myself that I am happy with where I'm at. I've reached a point of contentment. No one is just happy. Happiness is moments, right? There is no one is just happy all the time. It's unachievable and unsustainable. But you can be content most of the time. 
And that's where I'm aiming for. And I feel like most of the time I'm there. So we all have bad days and we have days where I, I wish I had treated someone better or I feel, but then I just forgive myself, move on and go, what can I do to fix that? And be better tomorrow. Because there's always, well, hopefully there's always a tomorrow until there isn't. So that's my philosophy on just not being so hard on myself and saying, okay, you didn't do this great today. You know, what can you learn from that? And and how can you do better tomorrow? And just have more of a balance with nature and doing these things. So yeah, I'm getting more philo philosophical in my old age. But would I change it? No, I don't think I would. It would be lovely to meet someone and do that. But then I think, how would they fit exactly? And how would I fit into their lives? How do we compromise certain, you know, is there someone else like me out there that not like me? Because you don't want to go out with the same replica of yourself. You want to learn from someone who's probably different. But who's gonna who's gonna understand that you're this driven and that you love this thing so much that you know you're gonna want to spend time in a studio and that you might only be able to see them like a couple of weekends a month and and maybe two or three days in the week? Yeah, you know it's hard to be selfish in a relationship. Um, for me, it is. I don't want to be selfish. I want to give my all to someone. So I'll probably end up going out with my agent. <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> if he heard that, he would die and be mortified. But the point is, it's like, it will probably have to be somebody who understands the business and has their own business going on because, and they're successful too, because only someone who is as driven as me probably understand what it, what it's like. I don't know. Yeah, or I think in in some cases of people I've spoken to, it's it's having that person that just fully understands what it means to you and is prepared to kind of be in it on your terms almost. Well, I don't think it's on my terms. It's just the way it is, right? It's not like I want it my way. It's like if I don't pay attention to this twenty four hours a day, yeah, something, something will fall. And because I'm alone doing that. Everything gets my attention and it all runs smoothly. And I'm not, I don't have anxiety because I'm taking care of business. But if I take two days off and everything isn't scheduled beforehand, it's a shit show. So I have to be really careful to make sure that things are pre planned. If I've got on a holiday coming up, everything is pre scheduled and it's all automated. And what can be is, you know, and so it, it, I work three months in advance typically just to relieve my anxiety yeah. so that I can sit here and do a podcast with you and not be th sitting here thinking, oh my God, I've got a million things to do. I've forgotten I had this on. I have. I don't, I cannot operate in that headspace. I cannot operate in chaos. I operate in strict discipline and structure because I never had that as a kid and it's what makes me feel safe. So that's, that is the walls I build for myself, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I don't want someone to come knocking them down really because it's what makes me feel good. It's like, <laughs> And I've never had this conversation on a podcast ever, but it's like, you meet a guy, they could be the loveliest guy, but they're not into fitness. They like to eat pizza at one in the morning. It's That's my idea of hell. Mm. You know? So I'm not saying you can't eat a pizza now. And then what I'm saying is like, care about your body, care about yourself. I can't be with someone who doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because we're, we're not alive. So you've got to have things in So. That's something, you know, and then and then have something going on in your life so that I'm not the source of your entertainment. So that when we bring things to the table, we're not bringing a big steaming bag of crap. We're bringing good things into the, good energy so that when there is a problem, we can support each other and fix it. You yeah. know, I've had relationships where I've made mistakes and I've, I've brought a lot of baggage that I shouldn't have brought, uh, you know, it's, and, and when I was younger. 
And I feel sorry for for that. And I, you know, and there's times where people have brought their baggage to me. And it's it's, you know, you get to a point where you just want to meet people that ha- go, look, we're all damaged to a certain point. We've all got this, but I think I'm in a good place where I can I can be in a relationship. Where I don't think what's in it for me. I think about what can I bring for you. What can I do to make your life better? Yeah. And you want to meet someone in that space. So much as I've taken drugs and been that person and done all that, if I meet someone lovely, but they're off the tits, I, I can't have a relationship with you. Mm. That's not where I am. That's your journey. You know what I mean? That's good for you. That's where you're at. I'm in a different place. So if you work all the time and you don't go out and you do, where are you going to meet people like that? It's difficult, you know? So I've just got used to it, I guess. And again, I'm happy. And if I was really, I mean, I travel a lot. I go away all the time. I go away at least every six weeks. You know, I'm always traveling. So I, I feel like I fulfill my needs fine by by having these amazing experiences and doing that. So I don't feel bad about it and I wouldn't change anything if I'm going to end on that note. Amazing. Um, Sharisa Severio, DJ Rap, thank you very much for sharing all of that with me. Um, it's been a fantastic, interesting conversation and, and there's loads of ways we could have even further gone off because... I think there's things you've shared where I've stopped myself coming back with certain stuff because I'm like, I'm not in a place where I can share that on my podcast, um, which kind of tells me the level of openness that you've had on it. So I really thank you for that. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I think I think all we can do is be as real as we can. And I don't want to sit here and talk about all the, typical stuff. And I, I, when you asked me to do this podcast, I think the most important thing is to have a real conversation about things. Yeah. It's not all roses. It's not all great. Of course, but there are many great things. And I just hope that through my story, maybe other people can feel that they, they can feel inspired to get through their own traumas and do what they're doing. That's all, you know, and I really appreciate the opportunity. So thanks for letting me be real with you. Great stuff. Speak soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Once a DJ podcast. If you've got any questions or feedback or any suggestions for guests, please just get in touch with us at onceadjpodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at onceadjpodcast. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.